Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12. On Sunday, we covered um, verses 1 through 11. This evening, we're going to cover verses 12 through 36. And um, we'll be lucky if we get that far. (laughs) Um, As we look at these, the reason we're stopping at verse 36 is we have um, literally... Jesus coming to the end of his public ministry. And because the next Sunday's message is going to begin um, with verse 36, and we'll finish the verse by verse, chapter by chapter this way. So this is one chapter where we're actually having two Sunday morning messages and one Wednesday night. And as we get into this one This evening, picking it up in verse 12, um, really what sets up verse 12 here, it says the next day. And we're going to spend some time here. For some of you, you're going to be very familiar with the triumphal entry. Some of you here, maybe for the first time, some of you watching live stream. Um, Because we uh, talk frequently about this, especially on Palm Sunday, Um, the gospels record it, so we go through it. John here does not do a thorough, as much as a thorough job as we're going to go to Luke. So I want to read all of Luke's account of the triumphal entry along with John's account here. John's account really is just verses uh, 12 through 15. To give you the full picture, we'll go over to Luke And then we'll go back to Daniel and Nehemiah. And again, um, the very reason that Israel went into captivity in 70 AD is they did not understand uh, Daniel chapter 9. And so we'll be going back there again this evening. It says, verse 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Well, if you read... Um, the last verse of chapter, uh, verse 11, <clears throat> we have, if you remember, the, the study was about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Remember, Martha was the server. Mary was the seeker. And here, um, Lazarus, who was dead, now is alive, and he's a living witness. So we got sort of tried, sidetracked and talked about gifts and some people have the gift of being a servant. Some people have uh, uh, other gifts. And um, we have the, all of us called to be um, lights and witnesses. But in verse 11 it said, uh, we'll go back to verse 10, but the chief priest took counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So as we read verse 12, there's really two reasons why the multitudes are so great. First, it's um, the Passover. Go back to chapter 12, verse 1. It was six days before the Passover. So now you would have had Jews coming from all over the known world to Jerusalem. That would have been one of the reasons for the multitude. The other is very next day. So you have Lazarus being raised from the dead, 
And then the very next day, we read verse 12, the next day. So the reason the crowds were so large, it says great multitudes, was for those two reasons. The Passover was coming, and the word had to be out on Lazarus. And I'm sure there was a buzz. And when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, we read that they took palm branches and they went out to meet him and cried out. This is the, the first of two prophecies that we'll look at tonight. This is a quote from Psalm 118. It says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. If we were to go back and read that more carefully, it goes on and say, this is the day that the Lord has made will rejoice and be glad in it. Speaking of a particular day. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. So now we have another prophecy. This one comes from Zechariah, verse 9 and 10. And I know I'm repetitive when I say this, but let me say it anyway without having to turn to Zechariah 9. It says, Behold, Israel, your king comes to you lowly, sitting on a colt of a fold. That's verse 9. And um, it's in reference and it's being fulfilled here. He's on top of the Mount of Olives and he's riding this donkey and we walk this whenever we're in Israel. We'll start at the top and we walk all the way down to um, the Garden of Gethsemane. But the very next verse says, and your kingdom will be from sea to sea. So I'm quoting now Zechariah verse nine and 10. Nine speaks of his first coming on a donkey. 10 speaks what he will be reigning over the entire world from sea to sea. And the point that I want to make here and that you want to get used to and familiar with is the scriptures in the Old Testament prophecies do that quite a bit. They'll have a gap in time of thousands of years. And that's exactly the case here. And verse 15, Fear not, O daughters of Zion, behold your king is coming sitting on a, a donkey's colt. Now this is all John is going to give us. Uh, but there's, it's to me, um, Daniel's 70 week prophecies are probably uh, the most dramatic. So if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 9. No, first of all, we need to turn to Luke chapter 19 and get a more f- full account of, um, of what John just gives us maybe four or five scriptures of. So let's go back to verse 28 of chapter 19. Again, the title of triumphal entry. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he came near to Bethage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, says, I want you guys to go into the the village opposite you where when you enter, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. This is not only a prophecy being fulfilled, but it's a miracle. Anybody who has raised horses or any animal, you have to break them before you can ride them. Not this one. No one had ever sat in this donkey. It says, loose him and bring him here. And by the way, if anybody says, why are you loosening him? Thus you will say to him, because the Lord had need of him. Now, whether or not the Lord had 
talked to this guy ahead of time, saying I'm sending some guys over when I get into town uh, to get the donkey. He could have had that conversation. Scriptures don't say. Or they just could have went and the Holy Spirit could have just prompted this guy. They could have said, hey, what are you guys doing? Well, he does. And, um, he, he did say, why are you loosening him? What are you doing with my, my colt? And they just said, well, the Lord has need of him. Doesn't give us an ex- explanation why. So those who were sent departed, found it just as they said to him. But as they loosed the colt, the owner said, what are you guys doing, loosening the colt? They said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. They threw their own garments on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And then he went. They spread their clothes on the road. Now, the road is a decline. Um, Jerusalem is on an elevated plateau that leads up to the Temple Mount. It comes down on one side. But if you're on the Mount of Olives, it also comes down in what we call the Kidron Valley. Uh, Years ago, there used to be a stream that would flow right through there. And once you get to the Kidron, then you're going back uphill again. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse uh, 37. As he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, uh, when we talk about the Psalms, Psalm 22 is prophetic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus spoke from the cross. Uh, Psalm 118 is messianic because it is a reference and it is referring to when the Messiah comes. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what the people were acknowledging. A lot of them because of what had happened, what, the day before. What happened the day before? Lazarus was raised from the dead. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They were upset. They said, they think you're the Messiah. They're quoting Psalm 118. Tell them to shut up because that's heresy. You're not the Messiah as far as they're concerned. But the Lord answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now this is an exception. Usually when a miracle was done or they wanted to worship him, he would sidestep that. And sometimes he would uh, say like um, in Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? Some think you're Elijah, some think you're Jeremiah, some think you're this prophet, some think that prophet. Who do you think I am? Well, Peter, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. And he commends Peter, but then later on in the Gospels it says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody that I am the Messiah, but not this time. They're heralding him, and the religious leaders are saying, tell him, tell your followers not to say that. And he says, I can't. Because, I tell you, if they would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. 
This was the day. And as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, I'm trying to put, I'll try to put some emotion in this, because I believe it was with a heavy sigh that he said it. If he had only known, even especially in this, and I have underlined here, your day. The things that could have made for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another. Let's just stop there. He's prophesying here. He's saying, you could have had peace, and it's not going to happen. But what's going to happen is your enemies are going to come and level Jerusalem to the ground. And then he says, because. In other words, there's a reason. Now, this was April 632 AD when he was saying that, because it refers to a specific day. And he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And of course, the implication is that they were supposed to. They were supposed to be looking for um, a mighty man doing miracles, like raising people from the dead who would be riding a donkey on a particular day. It was all foretold. And so what we have in Luke's account is a much more detailed um, meaning of the triumphal entry. Why? And it raises a question. If he says, because you didn't know, the implication is they should have known. My question to you is, how should they have known? So now we have to go back to the book of Daniel. So let's go back to Daniel. And again, some of you are very familiar with these scriptures. But as Jay Vernon McGee always says about learning prophecy, repetition, repetition, repetition. <laughs> and we, Paul said the same things. He says, I know you know these things but I'm going to tell you them again anyway so that you'll, you'll, you'll be stirred up. Let me make an analogy at this point. They missed the first coming of the Messiah for one reason. They didn't know the word of God. The danger for our generation right now, we'll be talking more about this on Sunday, is the same danger is taking place because the Lord said he's coming back. All prophecy will be fulfilled It'll be the generation that sees the regathering of the nation of Israel. And that has happened 71 years ago. And so the danger of not knowing the significance of that prophecy can lead to indifference, doing your own thing, living your own life, instead of thinking, you know what? The Lord could come today. He really could. And so if you're in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel was reading Jeremiah, that's what it says in verse one. And he understood that they were gonna be in captivity for 70 years, the whole book of Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet because he only had one message. He says, you guys have gotten away from the Lord. God's gonna judge you for it. You're gonna be there for 70 years. Daniel went there when he was 17 years old. When Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, he took it in three different stages. 
Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his buddies, they all went the first time. It's now 70 years later, which makes Daniel at least, uh, let's see, 70 and 17, what, 87? So he's been there, and he said, you know, I've been reading Jeremiah lately. 70 years has come. 70 years is gone. And Lord, you said we're going home after 70 years. Seven years is up. I'm not going to take you through the prayer, but beginning with verse 3 all the way to verse 19 is a prayer of repentance on behalf of the sins of Israel for not listening to the prophet Jeremiah. And the prayer intensifies as you read through it until you get to verse 19 as he's repenting. Verse five, he says, we've sinned, committed iniquity, done wickedly, we've rebelled, and departing from your precepts and your judgments. They got away from the word of God. And David, uh, Daniel, is repenting on behalf of the nation. By the time we get to verse 19, you, you see the, the explanation, explanation points there. <laughs> o Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your city, your people are called by your name. End of prayer. Because he was interrupted um, right in the middle of his prayer by Gabriel the angel. Pick it up in verse 20. While I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, which really Gabriel, the angel, who I had seen in, the, in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me, and he talked with me. And he said, oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, which is verse 3 through 19, the command went out, and I have come to tell you. Now, I'd like to stop and point something out here. He's going to give him one of the most incredible Bible prophecies in the Bible. But what do we read in 1 Corinthians 13? Though I have all knowledge, though I understand all prophecy, all that, but if I don't have love, what does it profit? Zilch. So in other words, you can be extremely knowledgeable in things and have the facts down and have them down pat. But we have an order here. Gabriel tells Daniel, first of all, Daniel, you are greatly beloved. So we have inspiration of love before explanation of prophecy. And I think it's important that we we have an understanding of that. Daniel, you're greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Verse 24, and this is very important to understand that what he's about to give refers only to the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And basically, 77s, uh, 70 weeks here are determined. Um, a week here would be 70 times seven, 
or 490 years is basically what's being said. So I would read verse 24. There's going to be 490 years that are determined for your people, that would be the Jewish people, and the holy city. That's what we have in view. To finish in transgression, to make an end of sin, that hasn't happened yet, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, that's happened on the cross, to bring in everlasting righteousness, that hasn't been fulfilled yet, to seal up vision and prophecy, that hasn't been fulfilled yet, and to anoint the most holy. So that's what's gonna be accomplished, these six things. And then in verse 25, he says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. Now, if you're a Jewish rabbi, if you're a Jewish person at all, if that doesn't stop you mid-sentence, I don't know what will, because it can't become any more clear than that. In other words, after 483 years, the Messiah is going to show up. And, and I asked my Jewish friends and my rabbi friends, have you ever just read Daniel chapter 9 slowly and literally? Because it says there's going to go forth a command, and when it comes to restore and build Jerusalem, uh, until the Messiah, there will be the seven weeks and 62 weeks, or the 69 weeks will have been fulfilled. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And then there's a pause, and it says, when the Messiah comes, in verse 26, he's going to be cut off. The Hebrew there word is the word that's used for ex- an execution. And you go, What? The Messiah is going to be executed. And here's the reason this is spiritualized and explained away in so many um, messianic circles. You can't have the Messiah coming and dying. No, he's coming to set up a kingdom. Which is it? Answer, both. How is that accomplished? Two comings. First time lowly, on a little donkey. The second time on a white stallion that has a robe that says king of kings and lord of lords and a sharp two-edged sword goes out of his mouth. That's the second coming. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's what Jesus predicted in Luke chapter 19. Because you don't know Daniel chapter 9 that I'm going to tell you to the exact day that the Messiah is going to show up And then the Lord says they're going to come and not one stone will be left upon another. Daniel's saying the same thing right here in verse 26. They shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Check it off. It's been fulfilled. 70 AD. The end of it shall be with a flood and the end of the war desolations are determined. Now, remember what I said about Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. There was a gap. Well, we have it here in chapter 9 between verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, Jesus was executed on the Passover. He was the Passover lamb. Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. How long is a week again? Seven years. So 69 of the 
of the weeks, or 483 years, have been fulfilled when he was executed. And now the he, in verse 27, goes back to, and the people of the, go back to 26, and the people of the prince who is to come, notice it's in the future tense, is a reference to the Antichrist. That hasn't happened yet, my friends. I believe the stage is set for it right now. They're looking for peace in the Middle East. Good place for amen. <laughs> Just turn on the news. And uh, what's the news tonight? We're trying to de-escalate instead of escalate. We're trying to, take, trying to calm things down and not have war in the Middle East when the Bible clearly says there's going to be war in the Middle East. And the three main players, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, are the three main players. The stage is set. So we have a gap between verse 26 and 27. Um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus opens the the seals, the seven-sealed scroll. And the first thing that comes out is a rider on a white horse. And he goes out, it says, to make war. And that's the beginning of that a seven-year period of time. If you go to Revelation 6 and go through Revelation 19, you have, until the Battle of Armageddon, exactly a seven-year period of time. And um, we'll know when that day begins when there's a peace treaty signed in the Middle East and the one who signs it is the prince who is to come. But then in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, if taking notes, 2 Thessalonians chapter two talks about um, the beast going into the temple declaring himself that he'll be God. We call that event the abomination of desolation. It's a halfway mark. And then it says, on the wings of abomination shall he make desolate, even unto the consummation which is determined is poured out on, on the desolate. Okay, Dwight, you gotta have a starting point. You say it's 48, 483 years when the command is given. Question, when was the command given? For that, you need to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter two, Uh, The king is Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is in Sushan, the capital. And he's basically the cupbearer. And he had the tough job of tasting the king's wine before the king did. Because if anybody poisoned it, then the wine taster would die first and the king would live. So chapter two, and evidently, Nehemiah was a type of guy where the glass was always three quarters full and he was always positive and he was always happy before the king not this day and um, it says it came to pass in the month of Nisan uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes when wine was before him that I took the wine and I gave it to the king but I had never been sad in the presence of the king before therefore the king said to me why is your face sad you don't, you're not sick, are you? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I became dreadfully afraid. And he's, 
and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. And then the king is putting two and two together here. He goes, okay, Nehemiah's never sad. He's always glad. He's really bummed out today. Why? He just got news. They're going back. They were allowed to go back um, to Jerusalem from Babylon. But less than 50,000 of them went. And they were doing nothing. And he just got word that all the people that were taken into captivity, only 50,000 are coming back. And those 50,000, they're not doing anything. They're discouraged with the rubbish of the destruction of the temple. And he says, so why why shouldn't I be sad? And so the king just comes right out and asks him, he says, what do you want, Nehemiah? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That's what we call one of these quickie prayers. You don't know what to do and you have to give an answer real quick. (laughs) Lord, what do I do here? And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and your servants have found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen was also sitting beside him, well, how long are you going to be gone for? And are you going to return? So it pleased the king to send me. He said, all right, Nehemiah, you've been faithful servant. You can go for a while. What do you want? And then Nehemiah says this, well, by the way, king, I said to the king, if it pleased the king, I need letters of authority. I just can't go riding into town and said that you said that um, the people need to get back to work. But I want letters to be given to me from the governor of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through until I get to Judah. And I also want a letter to the keeper of the king's forest that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the uh, the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God. Now, without getting into all the math, let me recommend a book. Sir Sir Robert Anderson's book. On the on the uh, on doing the the uh, math, when you go back to um, Daniel nine, it says from the going forth of the command, then start to count. Sixty nine weeks equals four hundred and eighty three years. Back then, the calendar was predicated not on a three hundred and sixty five like ours, but on a three hundred and sixty day calendars. And you will come up with 173,880 days. So when that command was given in Nehemiah chapter 2, that's when you start counting. 173,880 days later, um, that was, um, decree was given on March 14th, 445 BC, brings us to April 6th, 32 AD. What did Jesus say was the reason that they were going to be destroyed because you did not know the time of your visitation. You guys weren't studying Daniel. You guys should have had this all figured out and if you would have just taken it literally and not tried to spiritualize it or explain it away, 
You should have been looking. You should have been watching. Now let's just stop and make it personal for us right now. What is the one thing the Lord talks about specifically to do for the generation that sees the regathering of the nation of Israel? One word, which is watch. Watch for what? All the things that we see going on in the world right now should put us in a state of uh, anticipation. Um, Instead of getting caught up in the world, coming more out of the world. Back to John chapter 12, which I bet you guys thought we'd never get back to. And I had to lay that foundation out, going to Luke, and then going to um, Daniel, going to Nehemiah to get when that decree was given, and then just count out the days, and then Luke actually saying, the destruction, oh Jerusalem, if you'd only know that this is your day. And, um, uh, and you've missed it. That brings us to verse 16 where there is a change of thought and John is the only one that addresses this. It's not in the other two accounts of the triumphal entry. Uh, let's just read verse 16 for starters. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. John is writing this many years later, and he admits he did not understand what Jesus was doing that day. Probably he asked James and Peter and Andrew, and they didn't understand either. Mary was the only one who had entered into his death. Remember, we made the point that even though Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. What are they doing? They're arguing about who's going to sit on the right hand and the left hand in the kingdom. They had their own plans. Who was listening? And this is one of the main points of last Sunday's message. Mary was listening. She was sitting at his feet. What was she doing? Oh, she was putting burial perfume on his feet and he rebukes remember he he rebuked Judas Iscariot oh this could have been sold for a whole year's wages but he just wanted it because he was a thief and um, she understood so when we read here um, in verse that, that they didn't understand only Mary was the one who really got it. The others didn't understand until after his death and resurrection when Jesus was glorified, then remembered that these things were written of him. It's the same today. Um, People pretty much hear what they want to. Um, They don't like gloom and doom. They don't like scriptures as, um, let's say these are the beginnings of sorrows. And it's going to only get worse instead of getting better. That's, that's not happy clappy. That doesn't make me feel all warm and fuzzy. But it's the truth. And uh, these days, um, truth is not really something that's seriously sought after. All right, let's read verse 17 through 19. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb 
and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Here is a situation loaded with dynamics. The crowd is enthusiastic. Why? Because a day before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, they're interested is now centered on Lazarus and on the Lord. The Pharisees are out to kill him. We just read that in verse 10. The chief priests got together and they said, well, we've got to kill Lazarus too, not only Jesus. He's a living witness. And they're starting to follow him because now he's alive. Obviously, Jesus Christ could have had the crown without going to the cross. He could have been crowned right there. That's what they wanted to do. Hosanna, Hosanna. You're the king. We'll make you king right right now. And I often think about the fickleness of, of a human being and how fickle we can be at times. One day saying, um, glory to God, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in just a couple of days, they're gonna be saying, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas instead. And the, the turning of, of the crowd here. However, if he had accepted the crown at that point, and if he was the ruler today, you and I would never have been saved. That's something to think about. He had to go to the cross to save you and me. All this, although this was a brief moment of triumph before his death, it was not the triumphal entry. In the future, when he enters as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that will be his triumphal entry. And we're riding with him when he comes and he establishes his throne. But it can only af- happen after the church age, which I believe is about a 2,000 year period of time, then we have the seven years in the tribulation. That one week in Daniel 9, verse 27, he'll confirm a covenant. He's gonna make peace in the Middle East. Make a peace agreement, but then he's gonna break it. And uh, or let's go back to verse 20 to 22. And it's kind of strange, we'll look into this. I'll try to give you an explanation of what I think is going on here. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who had come up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And we wonder what's going on here. Um, and I'm going to give you J. Vernon McGee's account. And his comment on this is apparently Jesus had gone into the temple since there is a court for the women and a court for the Gentiles these Greeks cannot go in where Jesus is Philip has a Greek name and may have spoken Greek 
which is probably the reason they came to him. Philip is a modest and retiring fellow, and he goes to Andrew for help, and together they bring the Greek, these Greeks to Jesus. And Jesus, um, now picking it up in 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, in the Gospel of John, this occurs seven times where the Lord talks about his hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now here, he's saying my hour has come. And most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. And he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servants will be also. And if anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. And as he's speaking, he says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so he's making this a prayer, basically, again, saying, uh, again, I can't put it into words, the enormity of the sins of all people for all time being placed on the Lord and he knows that that's the reason he came. But he came, it says verse 28, so that the Father would be glorified and then he prays in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Now I want you to catch this because it only happens three times in the Bible. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I'm gonna glorify it again. Now, heaven couldn't remain silent but had to respond. God answered audibly at this point to what the Lord was about to do. Have you noticed that God spoke to him out of heaven on three occasions? One at the beginning. Remember when he was baptized? This is my beloved son when John baptized him. The Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove, but the Father spoke from heaven. And then in the middle of his ministry on the Mount of Transfiguration, we have Moses and Elijah appearing to the Lord. And then here at the end of his ministry, one in the beginning, one in the middle, and one of the end. We have the Father audibly speaking. Well, it freaked out some of these people <laughs> because therefore the people who stood by and heard it said, I thought it thundered. Others said, no, that was some angel or something that was speaking to him. And Jesus said, the voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. And so... Again, I believe it was for the people's sake at his baptism. 
it was for Peter, James, and John's sake on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now the Lord is saying, yeah, my father just spoke from heaven, but he didn't do it for my benefit. He did it for yours. Because he's confirming the very reason for my coming. And, and what the father said was, um, I will both glorify it. I have both glorified it, and I'm going to glorify it again. So the, um, look out for the Jesus-only people. Um, and those who deny the Trinity. The Trinity's all over the, the Bible. Good place for an amen. amen. I mean, just start with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, gods. It's plural. It's Elohim. God in singular in Hebrew is El. But that's not what it says. It says, in the beginning, gods, plural, created the heavens and the earth. In verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. And you have it throughout, and you have pictures of it, of the Trinity, all all through the scriptures. All right, now the judgment of the world is about to take place. And we find, we left off in verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Interesting. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Another way of saying is that Everybody has an opportunity to be drawn. The Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. He presents truth. The Bible says today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's for a non-believer. And don't try to explain away the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, he's saying the world is gonna be judged and I'm gonna draw people to myself. This he said signifying by what death he would die. And the people answered him, let me just stop right there and let's, let's deal with what this judgment is, is all about. Jesus' death on the cross was the judgment of the world and the prince of this world, or, or Lucifer. This is one of the things the Holy Spirit will bear witness to, according to John 16. We live in a world that is judged. He came to die a judgment death for the sins of the world. If the world will not accept this, the world will be judged. That's what the great tribulation is all about. It's for those who have rejected uh, the gospel during during the church age. How is Satan, the prince of the world, cast out? Well, it could be a gradual procedure as we think about it, because if he was cast out then, how can he be cast out in Revelation chapter 12? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. When Jesus died on the cross, I'm convinced that Satan did not understand what really was happening. What he thought was his victory was really the Lord's victory. It was all one on the cross, but not from Lucifer's perspective. He lost the battle at the cross, which is the reason the Lord can say that the prince of the world is now cast out. Then in Revelation 12, verse 10, 
we're told again that there's war in heaven. Michael and his angel uh, made war against the devil and his angels. They were outnumbered (laughs) two to one. One third of the angels rebelled with them. But we have this war and we have the devil being cast down and it says he's coming down to the earth in great wrath and he knows he only has a short time. How much time? Exactly three and a half years. Who does he go after? Israel. Goes after the woman. If you're taking notes and you want to get more in detail, just write down Revelation 12. So he's cast out here and the victory's won at Calvary. Revelation 12, he still has access to heaven. He also had access in the book of Job. Um, that's the second stage, you might say. Then in Revelation, if you're taking notes, chapter 20, verse 3, he will be cast into the bottomless pit. Now when Jesus returns, it says the Antichrist and the false prophet are immediately taken and they're cast into the lake of fire. But that's not what it says about Lucifer. It says that Lucifer is thrown into the bottomless pit and he's chained for a thousand years so that he won't be able to deceive the nations. So we have several different um, accounts of Satan being cast out. First defeated at the cross, then kicked out of heaven, Revelation 12, knowing he only has a short time left. Then he's sealed for a thousand years in what's called the bottomless pit. And after a thousand years, he's let go to go out and deceive anybody who wants to be deceived. Do I have a little time to get sidetracked here? I like to pick on psychologists and psychology because they're always telling you that you're really just a result of the society that you grew up in and it's probably your mother's fault. You are the way you are or whatever. Oh, you grew up in a poor side of town. That's why you have to get away or whatever. The Bible says that my heart and your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. And we blame the world we live in for the way we are and people will spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour to sit down with some shrink and lay on some couch and tell them it's not your fault. When the Bible says it's all your fault. There's none that are good, no, not one. That your heart is deceitful above all things. Prove it. Okay, let's prove it. Let's pick the perfect king who never sinned once. Let's pick a perfect society for a thousand years. And you still have free will. Now everybody that in the beginning enters into this thousand years is born again and saved. That's Matthew 25, where the Lord separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep go into the kingdom. They're blessed. The goats took the mark of the beast. They're going to hell. But longevity of life is restored once again. People, just like before the fall, uh, and afterwards there was a decline. You know the old saying as old as Methuselah. Well, he was like 960 some years old. And so longevity of life is now restored 
and there's gonna be a population explosion. But man still has free will. And they will have the free will to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they also have the free will not to. But in order to have a choice, you have to have an option. Jesus is gonna rule and reign, how? With a rod of iron. He's gonna keep the law and you get out of line. He's he's gonna put it back in line. But now, the thousand years is coming to an end and we're getting ready to enter into eternity. And there's still many people that are indecisive. What have they been living in? Perfect ruler, perfect society, perfect environment. And we read that when the devil is released, he goes out and he deceives the nations of the world. And I can't believe it. They do it. Their heart is deceived. They choose Lucifer over Jesus and they come to Jerusalem to make war against him. So what does the Lord do? And they're all gone. (laughs) Just like that. Now everybody has made their choice. Then it says for the last time, then and only then, does the Lord take the devil and cast him into the lake of fire. Now that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible where he will deceive nobody, no more, forever and ever and ever. And we enter into eternity. And that is, will be our, our eternal home. So we have these stages. He, was, he thought he won at the cross. No, he was defeated at the cross. Wasn't kicked out of heaven until Revelation 12. Um... From there he is cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years and then released that it says that he will actually deceive people. So much for you being a product of your environment. And so much for saying, well, I am the way I am because it was my dad's fault because he he turned me into the person. No, Uh, we're all falling into the same category And that is, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Good place for an amen. The Bible makes so much sense. And when you see God's plan, he has a plan from Genesis to Revelation. He's got dates set that have to be fulfilled on a certain day, to the day. Not April 5th or April 7th, April 632 AD. To the day. And um, the only, we... If I had a lot more time, I'd give you the, the, you can know, just read the last chapter, last four verses of Revelation 12, and you can know to the day that Jesus Christ is coming again a second time. 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation takes place. I know the day he came to the day the first time. I'm not going to be here when he comes back the 1,000. I'm going to be with him, but we will. I'm sure Moses and Elijah will be um, teaching exactly how much time is left by going through these sort of, sort of studies. All right, we just got a couple more verses to finish up. I left off in verse um, 33, and I will lift, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. This he said, signifying what, what death he would die. 
And the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man can be lifted up? Again, they had a tunnel vision that the Messiah, when he comes, is just gonna set up the kingdom, period. No suffering servant. No one who's certainly gonna die. What do you mean you're gonna be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? That's a question. Two more verses. Then Jesus said to him, and this is where we're gonna begin on Sunday. Then Jesus said to him, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. This ends Jesus' public ministry. Jesus now withdraws from, from this ends, his public ministry. He will never again appear publicly, publicly, until he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. This was his last study. What's gonna happen um, next is he removes from there, and this is where we're gonna pick it up on Sunday, and we'll finish it from there. And it is exactly my time to pray. Let's stand. (laughs) Lord, thank you for your word tonight as we've gone through these verses. And once again, we see how incredibly accurate your word is. And the fact of the matter is there isn't any power in the universe that can stop any one of the things that we talked about this evening from coming to pass. If this is the case, Lord, help us major on the majors. And um, let's help us not make the mistake that Israel made by not knowing prophecy, by not knowing the day. Lord, for us, you said you'd fulfill these things when Israel becomes a nation. And now we see all the events and we see the signs. Lord, help us not to fall into complacency or indifference. Give us some discernment and help us, Lord, to finish well in these last days. So we pray for Sunday morning, pray for the services um, for for the funeral services this weekend. And we pray you go before us the rest of this night. In Jesus' name, amen. And when you see God's plan, he has a plan from Genesis to Revelation. He's got dates set that have to be fulfilled on a certain day, to the day. Not April 5th or April 7th, April 632 AD. To the day. And um, the only we... If I had a lot more time, I'd give you the, the, you can know, just read the last chapter, last four verses of Revelation 12, and you can know to the day that Jesus Christ is coming again the second time. 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation takes place. I know the day he came to the day the first time. I'm not going to be here when he comes back the 1,000, I'm going to be with him, but we will. I'm sure Moses and Elijah will be um, teaching exactly how much time is left by going through these sort of sort of studies. 
All right, we just got a couple more verses to finish up. I left off in verse um, 33, and I will lift, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. This he said, signifying what, what death he would die. And the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how could you say the Son of Man can be lifted up? Again, they had a tunnel vision that the Messiah, when he comes, is just gonna set up the kingdom, period. No suffering servant. No one who's certainly gonna die. What do you mean you're gonna be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? That's a question. Two more verses. Then Jesus said to him, and this is where we're gonna begin on Sunday. Then Jesus said to him, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. This ends Jesus's public ministry. Jesus now withdraws from from this ends his public ministry. He will never again appear publicly, publicly, until he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. This was his last study. What's gonna happen um, next is he removes from there, and this is where we're gonna pick it up on Sunday, and we'll finish it from there. And it is exactly my time to pray. Let's stand. (laughs) Lord, thank you for your word tonight as we've gone through these verses. And once again, we see how incredibly accurate your word is. And the fact of the matter is there isn't any power in the universe that can stop any one of the things that we talked about this evening from coming to pass. If this is the case, Lord, help us major on the majors. And um, let's not, help us not make the mistake that Israel made by not knowing prophecy, by not knowing the day. Lord, for us, you said you'd fulfill these things when Israel becomes a nation. And now we see all the events and we see the signs. Lord, help us not to fall into complacency or indifference. Give us some discernment and help us, Lord, to finish well in these last days. So we pray for Sunday morning, pray for the services, um, for, for the funeral services this weekend, and we pray you go before us the rest of this night. In Jesus' name, amen.